0: Okay, welcome back, and thank you for being here. Uh, Today is the fourth uh, installment, the fourth in the series on Nityananda, reading through the book uh, Nityananda in Divine Presence, which was compiled by a devotee, uh, Captain uh, Hatengi, and then further... Refined and um, collated, put together into the book by Swami Nanda, student of uh, Rudi or Rudrananda, who was a student of Muktananda, who was associated with Nityananda, not a, not a successor. M- Muktananda was not a successor of Nityananda, um, but one of many who came to him for guidance or teaching or darshan. Uh, Last time we went through the first two chapters, we're going to just read through them all, and uh, there are about 20 in the book, uh, In Divine Presence. The book's still available, I recommend it, it's really wonderful. Um, Last time, chapters were The Early Years and South Kanara, uh, 1900 to ultimately 1936, but Actually, we go back a step in these chapters for today, starting with third chapter, Discovery in Udipi, Part 1, 1918. Udipi is a small town, uh, today it's probably a city, uh, in between Mangalore and Goa, on the west coast of India. I was in Goa. Um, last year, about a year ago, and um, (laughs) the uh, uh, ocean was hot. It was very shocking to go. It's the Arabian Sea, and uh, on the other side, due west from Goa, is uh, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Oman, Yemen, (laughs) Saudi Arabia, due west more or less, from Goa, so it's a different part of the world (laughs) and uh, Nityananda basically um, arrived or appeared in the south and made his way up north over the years not by pilgrimage but by the settling phase in his life after the pilgrimages of his early youth Uh, moving up to Ganeshpuri which was the second place where there was an ashram or he stayed for many years there, and you'll see much later in the story when he's in Ganesh Puri, that area, which just so happens to be where Muktananda um, started his ashram, and now the Siddha Foundation is there, Muktananda's group, SYDA, which is a totally different situation, actually, although they revere Muktananda as one of the root gurus of the lineage. Ganesh Puri um, is not too far from Pune where um, Rajneesh has the ashram as well, which is interesting. So that is north of Udipi and um, near Bombay. Uh, so at this point, though, in the uh, at the end of the 1910s or so, where the story picks up, he was in Udipi. And <clears throat> given the situation in the world today, the coronavirus and whatever that is, and wherever it's going, and um, um, lots of people have um, mm, perspectives and opinions on where it's going. I think it's important to um, be prepared physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Um, There's just some uh, subtle linkage, I think, between reading the story of Nityananda who, um, in my view, was basically a guardian in human form, um, helping humanity in the 20th century, for now, here in the 21st century, particularly the 2020s, um, where I think humanity needs a lot of help again, and um, things are going into a darker phase, I believe. So let's just jump in Uh, Chapter 3, Discovery in Udipi, Part 1, 1918. So the text begins. By 1918, the tiny village of Udipi was already a well-known center of pilgrimage. Here people could visit the Krishna temple, the birthplace of the third great teacher Madhvacharya, at the ancient Ananteshwar temple, and the area called Ajara Kadu or Grandfather's Wood. So these are all old historical places in India. And here's a story. Two friends strolled together here every evening, ending their walk by circling the two temples. Once, passing the Krishna temple, they were drawn to a thin young man who stood among the sannyasis in the outer corridor. At that moment, the youth that they were looking at, turned to face the wall and refused to be acknowledged. The friends, who had their nightly walk there, both agreed that this was an uncommon holy man. Several days later, they came upon him, this time at an entrance to the temple. Seeing them, Nityananda began to laugh uncontrollably. He did so for a prolonged period, and in a way that Mr. Bhatt, who was one of the two later said seemed to come from the depths of his being meaning a pretty deep laugh. Mr. Bhatt is one of the two friends. It's actually Mr. Bot and a man who later became a doctor, Dr. Kambar Baal. Weeks passed before they saw him again this time sitting by himself outside the ancient ananteshwar temple. Dr. Kambar caught hold of both his hands and asked him who he was and where he came from. He addressed him in Hindi, Kanadis, and English in quick succession. Nichinanda had apparently been observing silence for some time because it took great effort for him to speak. But he did so in fluent English, Hindi, and Konkani, which was the local language. He ended repeating he ended by repeating Nityananda, Nityananda, it's probably again Nityanan, Nityanan The two men realized that Nityananda referred to his blissful state, and that's why devotees from these early days called him Sadhu, Holy Man, or Swami, um, thinking that he's like the others, but different. Mr. Bhatt, having performed his father's anniversary ceremony that morning, invited the Sadhu to his house for a special meal. To his delight, the master readily accepted and ate his food from a plantain leaf and discarded the leaf himself. This was the last time he was observed to eat with his own hands. Subsequently, he ate only when fed by devotees. Even water he allowed devotees to pour into his mouth, indicating after a few swallows that he was satisfied. And the note here is that Mr. Bott and Dr. Kambam, became lifelong devotees. <coughs> later, I I mean how he was with food later I'm not sure, but this um anyway I'll explain later. Going on, <coughs> Nityananda stayed in Udipi for a time, often visiting Mangalore and Kaup, but he stayed nowhere for long. Mrs. T. Sitabai, Captain Hatengi's primary source concerning these days felt the young master was pulled mystically by devotees thinking of him or experiencing some stress. She said Nityananda would often leave Udipi abruptly without indicating his destination and then reappear some time later. For instance, one afternoon at half past three, he suddenly stood up and said he would return soon. And in fact, by five o'clock he was back. No one inquired nor did he indicate where he had been. Two days later a devotee arrived from Mangalore to say how in the early afternoon of that particular day his fellow devotees were longing to see him. Within minutes, he appeared. As on other occasions, no one asked how he covered the 50-odd miles to the seaport town, meaning the, the, the town of Mangalore from Udipi. They were content knowing that, when needed, Nityananda often came. Mrs. Krishnabai, an early devotee, describes a similar incident. It was to be Nityananda's first visit to her house in Mangalore, but when he arrived, he immediately turned and walked away with his usual speed. A crowd watched as Mrs. Krishnabai's husband and a friend tried to stop him physically. However, the sadhu easily swept both men along with him for a quarter mile before suddenly saying, she stopped me, and agreeing to return. It seemed that Mrs. Krishnabai's anguish was too great for him to ignore." So we have two primary female devotees here, Sita Bhai and Krishnabai, and some of these names are um, not unusual in South India. In the beginning, to keep him from the Krishna temple, street urchins in Udipi pelted the young Nityananda with stones. Oddly, those finding their mark were transformed into, into jewels, or sweets, according to similar stories from Kanangad. But those who scrambled to retrieve such treasures found only stones. When, after several days of this phenomenon, a pile of stones appeared at the feet of the Krishna temple statue, the matter was reported to the elderly Swami in charge, recognizing that Nityananda was no ordinary sadhu, he at once ordered everyone to treat him with respect. Throughout his life, Nityananda was a friend of beggars, the lowest castes, and the poor. He would let the money left at his feet by devotees accumulate and then order a feast for the poor, insisting on the best ingredients. Even when resources were scarce, food was still miraculously abundant. <clears throat> this became a regular event wherever he wandered and in later years he only accepted invitations from hosts willing to feed the needy. The master himself liked to dish up regional specialties for his guests with his two huge hands like Mangalore's idlis cooked in jackfruit leaves. It's one of the dishes there. To this day in Ganesh Puri feeding the local poor children known as bal Bojan, or Bohan, still occurs in Nityananda's name. Among those who sought his company in Udipi was a wealthy landlord's only son. The father, however, considered the master to be a dangerous eccentric and became alarmed when the schoolboy began giving money to help feed the poor. He decided to hire two assassins to kill Nityananda, a practice not uncommon for people of means in those days. You wonder why India has some bad karma. In this instance, because of his intended victim's frequent disappearances, the father thought the abduction would go unnoticed. One afternoon, while sitting on a veranda, the master suddenly smiled, stood up, and disappeared down the lane. His devotees quickly followed and found him held by one man and about to be stabbed by another. They overpowered the assassins, attracted the police, and only then noticed that the man who had wielded the knife was in, ex- was in excruciating pain, his arm frozen in its attack position. At Nityananda's touch, the man's arm dropped painlessly to his side. As the assailants were taken to jail, the protesting Nityananda followed and requested their release. The police refused. He then sat down and remained there for three days without food or water while his devotees negotiated with officials. Eventually, the prisoners were released. It is said that they became devotees of the master and that even the local officials developed a high regard for the eccentric sadhu. So, (laughs) uh, this is... um, uh, the many things to talk about here. First of all, as um, we talked about, or I talked about, um, yesterday, in the Uttana Sutta, from Sutta Nepata, uh, Pali Canon, Pali, early Theravadan Buddhism, Uttana meaning zeal, or energy, or <coughs> exertion, or vigilance, or initiative. Um, very much associated with apamada or apamada apamada which is um, similarly uh, heedfulness, attentiveness um, attentive ener- uh, active attent- active attentiveness something like that um, Nityananda uh, never stops and goes on and goes on and goes on and everything he's doing is of Taking care of the people around him, <clears throat> presumably. I mean, you'll see that that some of the stories sound similar. Um, absolutely, I imagine that some people have faulty memory in their telling of their their memories to Captain Hatengi, who collected all this. Uh, him saying "Nitinanda Nitinan Nitinan Nitinan" sounds like his stepfather, adoptive father, Mr. Ayer, saying "Nitinan Nitinan." um when uh, at the moment of death or or when the came back to him at age 16 after wandering maybe that's happened maybe it didn't happen um but <laughs> <clears throat> um, regardless of the um hagiographical hagiographical graphicality hagiographicality meaning uh, embellished stories that may be um, leavened in, mixed in here. I don't worry about that at all, <laughs> because um, I have faith or I um, trust what I believe when I see him and hear the stories about what he was and who he was. Again and again and again, <clears throat> uh, he's not only uh, very present in the moment, uh and very alert. But the root of merit is Dana. And Dana is generosity. And everything he's doing is Dana, generosity. Everything he's doing is giving. Nothing is taking, it seems, to me. I don't see him taking much of anything. He takes a meal. Um, Meanwhile, money and food uh, collects around him because he doesn't take it. And then he just orders that it's given to the local people um, it's almost like he's uh, you know the mani padma or the wish fulfilling jewel from om mani padma hom or om mani hom and um, everything that's happening uh, he's exquisitely sensitive to need and opportunity of service um uh, in in uh, surrounding him and at a distance uh, so initially they think that he's a sadhu they start to realize that he's different <laughs> that he's more than the ordinary seeker he's not a not quite a seeker he's a, a a found one or a realized being he's he's not seeking anymore he's found and so he's realized the object of the seeking which is self-realization or non-duality or mm, (laughs) uh, complete and perfect enlightenment. And again, bear in mind that uh, three qualities of divinity um, associated with the three laws that gave rise to light, or the three laws that gave rise to letting there be light, or uh, the basis of what's called OM, the original sound or pranava is the original sound is uh, love, free will, love, 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 light from the raw material, the original trinity, which is omnipotence, omniscience and omnipresence. So, free will is boundless will, omnipotence and love, love is ultimately sentience and omniscience omnisentience or omniscience, and uh, that's mind, so spirit, mind, body, and the form, or the lowest level, is light, which is intelligent energy, which is omnipresence, meaning everywhere, present. So, all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere. Um, he's uh, doing pretty well on all those three, it seems to me. And... um that's very interesting I mean he's speaking any language that is being offered up to him <laughs> he's speaking any of the languages of the people who approach and he seems to know where people what where when people are thinking about him in other locations and he can disappear and reappear and he seems to know where what's going to happen soon and he basically brought himself to the assailants who were hired to kill him he walked out to them and then did some magic and stopped the guy 's hand in midstream and with not <laughs> with not a a spot of of uh, vengefulness, he basically sat outside the jail without food and water until they were released, even though <laughs> you can say uh, most people would say they deserve their punishment, and uh I can imagine they would deserve more pain. But from him and from you, their karma, you know, they deserved um, what they got. What they got was him. And what he gave was uh, mercy. Mercy. Allah the merciful. God the merciful. This is a big deal. Um, In True News, Rick Wiles, once upon a time, was saying something like, um, The Lord takes no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. Um, that's mercy. That's a big deal, mercy. It's not only wisdom to discern that this is a a wrongdoer or wrongdoing and um, deserves a different response than um, virtuous uh, offering or virtuous activity. This is called wrong action, trying to kill somebody you don't know for money, a killer for money, is about as low as you can get on the scale. Uh, Meanwhile, (laughs) uh, the all-merciful, what appears to be like that, uh, he's basically sitting out there, he doesn't care about food and water, it seems, (laughs) he's just sitting out there and um, making a statement, which is um, all-merciful, or quite merciful, and uh, while they could have done their time and been sent up the river... Um, whatever that river might have been there they um, ended up becoming devotees and um, turned their lives around and so that's very interesting second chapter discovery in in Udipi part 2 goes on late one night a devotee was told by alarmed women of his household that Nityananda was running a high temperature However, the sadhu refused to leave his refuge, the filthy cattle shed, meaning the sadhu means Nityananda. So a devotee is told by some women of his household that Nityananda, who's in the cow shed, cattle shed, has a high temperature. I guess kind of normal if you're in the in the cow shed. However, the sadhu, meaning Nityananda. Refused to leave his refuge, the filthy cattle shed, repeating, the medicine is here. Thinking him delirious, the host pleaded with his guest until he finally agreed to move to the veranda, so they move him. Hurrying to the only chemist in Udipi, the devotee returned with a bottle of reddish-brown mixture for his fever. Nityananda shook the bottle, handed it back, and said, what is this, look at it. Removing the cork, the devotee found to his consternation that the liquid had changed color and now smelled like urine. The master laughed and said it was no better than what was in the cattle shed. So he transformed the medicine into urine. This was the monsoon season, when people customarily collected rainwater in drums placed below the eaves of their houses. The night of his fever... Nityananda suddenly began to gulp down the rainwater in the host's drum. Witnesses could not believe the amount of water he drank. When he finished, he turned and said, The fever is gone, and it was. What fever was that, one might ask? Indian families this this is interesting. That, that year so probably around nineteen twenty. Was it a was it a collective fever? Was it an internalization? by metaphysical power of the aggression or distortion of some portion of the human collective. Going on, Indian families used to perform a special ceremony six days after a birth to honor the goddess of destiny who was thought to write the newborn's future that night. On one occasion, and six days after a devotee's wife had given birth, Nityananda entered her room, swallowed the dried umbilical cord and left when questioned about his behavior he replied that this particular family had lost many children in infancy but that the new baby would survive sometimes nityananda humorously acted out a charade to describe an upcoming visitor one that he knew was coming one morning he slung an empty shopping bag over his left shoulder Bending slightly from the weight, in his right hand he pretended to carry something light. He then walked up and down the room before suddenly taking off for a neighbor's house. Following, perplexed devotees saw a man pacing the street looking for someone. He carried a heavy bag on his left shoulder and a water container in his right hand. Same same, uh, gesture, same appearance. By now, the master was sitting on his neighbor's veranda, approaching the steps, the stranger stopped and they gazed silently at one another for a long time. Finally, the master stood up and the man walked away. The man remained in the area for a while. When devotees asked about the encounter, he described himself as a Krishna devotee from Uttar Pradesh in the north, having had a vision. That Krishna was present in living form in Udipi, he traveled to the village, it's a long distance, where he felt drawn vibrationally to that particular neighborhood. Unsure of the exact house, he had wandered around for some time before Nityananda appeared. He added, I said nothing to him because with one look I knew why I was here. Tomorrow I will leave, blissfully happy, having received darshan of Krishna. Beautiful story. Wistfully, Mrs. Sitabai related an event that happened when she was both a new devotee and newly married. One day, Nityananda picked up a coconut and offered it to her. Now, it's rare and auspicious to receive a coconut from a holy person. Moreover, it is thought to keep widowhood at bay and a married woman would traditionally extend the skirt of her sari with both hands to receive it. But the young Mrs. Sitabai hesitated. She considered her high caste birth as a Brahmin, and whether it was acceptable for her to receive such a thing from a caste-less sadhu. He waited patiently for several minutes, and when she did not accept the offering, he threw it away, perhaps deciding that her fate held too strong a pull on her. Three months later, her husband died, and she would always wonder whether she might have been spared widowhood had her faith been stronger. In the early twenties, visited frequently visited Mrs. Krishnabai's Mangalore residence, which included several small rental houses. In those days, residents used a row of simple lavatories situated at the edge of the compound, Each morning, municipal workers would arrive with a cart to collect the night soil and take it away, meaning human waste. We know that Nityananda's eating habits were as unpredictable as his movements. Only partaking of food and water that was fed to him at this time in life, he would appear unexpectedly at Mrs. Krishnabai's door, looking hopeful. Sometimes the family had already eaten, and there might only be a few morsels of rice to put into his mouth, but this always seemed to satisfy him. One morning, however, compound residents were horrified to see the master by the lavatories sitting among piles of night soil, otherwise called human shit. Always an early riser, he appeared to have collected the matter with his own hands and formed the mounds, covering himself from head to toe in the process. He held a bamboo scale in his hand, and when anyone passed, he said, Bombay halwa? Bombay halwa? Very tasty. Would you like some? Then he would raise the scale as if to weigh out the desired quantity. He sat there all day, embarrassing everyone, even taking his afternoon naps there. When Mrs. Krishnabai finally approached, he said, You feed me, don't you? But would you also feed me this? Abashed, she turned away, and halwa is an Indian sweet confection. It's the same as halva or halwa, same. Uh, so he said, "You feed me, don't you? But would you also feed me this?" Abashed and probably quite confused, she turned away. That evening, Mrs. Krishnabai was afraid he would drop by the house, drop by the house without washing. She asked two of the assembled devotees to wait at the door to prevent him from bringing the filth inside, and promptly at seven o'clock, he appeared at the back door. In those days, he could be prevailed upon, at least in some matters, and the two devotees ended up taking him to the baths for a thorough scrubbing. Later, sitting with his devotees, Nityananda held out his palm and asked if they could smell the fine Parisian perfume. He never explained the meaning of the day's events and they never asked. The next morning, Mrs. Krishnabai found all the compound's residents lined up before the master asking his pardon. Drawing one of them aside, she inquired what had happened. The man explained, "Earlier that week while discussing how Nichinanda only at f- only ate food fed to him, someone had joked about offering him night soil, meaning shit." He went on. We now realize how wrong we were and that such a master can find nourishment in anything, even filth. Therefore, we seek his forgiveness. So somebody had basically made a sort of joke, uh, a private joke, <laughs> right? I mean, he didn't tell Nityananda the joke. Nityananda read the mind or who was tuned to um, multiple frequencies simultaneously, presumably. And... um you see, I think I think that you've got a group here that um, is upper caste, and Dityananda is a caste-less sadhu, totally looked down upon normally, commonly, by upper caste Brahmins in India. And you can see from the chapter above, uh, at that time, a hundred years ago, it was common, for caste Brahmin to hire assassins to go kill someone that they needed to, they wanted to have eliminated. No problem. Pop up. Um, life is cheap in India, um, actually, to some degree, and it's very easy to get sick and die. Um, and so, India is a very <laughs> complicated story. I'm not going to give a lecture on India, but it's very hard to understand. I spent my whole two weeks there trying to figure out what's going on here. And figure out the, the dynamics in play that, that were very subtle. Uh, so he's he's here at you know age twenty five or something, um, with a in a compound or with devotees that are upper caste, Brahmins, with um, superiority complexes, complices, I would say I would assume, and um, some of them may think that um, I mean they, it's very common. Um, for wealthy uh, disciples or devotees in any religion or wealthy Brahmins in India to make use of um, a monk or a sadhu or a priest or a temple for donation for their own uh, ego, so-called, or uh, feeding their pride feeding conceit and maintaining superiority complex and um, maintaining some wrong view and a lack of um, understanding what's really going on. And so they didn't really... If they thought that he was just some interesting sadhu that had some magic power, um, but they sort of were looking down on him, Uh, What he did here that day with the the shit-eating and the shit-resting very peaceful um, was to shock them out of their arrogance and their wrong view and their misunderstanding of um, (laughs) what's in play at the moment. Uh, He ain't just a sadhu and they have no metaphysical basis for superiority whatsoever. And their wealth is simply the karmic return of perhaps generosity or negative action but um they better get clear on what's really going on here and that's why he did such an uh, such a radical um shocking behavior i think uh, living in the in the lavatory with shit all over human shit all over and playing around with it um Some people will say, oh, well, you see, he's just a crazy man. Well, that's good. (laughs) For the people who like to be dismissive, it's good. Dismiss and leave. Go off and you'll find yourself uh, something that suits you better. Because this obviously doesn't suit the dismissive. So, fine. (laughs) Go off and go your own way. So, meanwhile, um, there's something going on here for those with eyes to see and um from the top, you can see all sorts of um unrecognized or unrecognizable un 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 unprovable assumptions as to uh, his motivation um meaning giving the coconut to the um newly wed wife and her rejection of it, basically out of her arrogance and conceit, she's a high-class Brahmin woman, and he's a low- or no caste, dirty, dark, sadhu-type strange fellow. Uh, three months later, she's a, her husband dies. Um, she got it, <laughs> I think, later that she was being given a test and she rejected or fe- failed or simply demonstrated that uh, she didn't have faith in him. She didn't see who he was and um, that's like the story you'll see later on where we talked about where a woman had a negative placement in her uh, progressed astrological chart showing Saturn inauspicious Nityananda said something like Saturn is there but God is here too meaning yes you have a very inauspicious Saturn placement which portends great harm to you in the future that's called karmic, karma, karmic return, destiny, and fate. And yet, there is a higher power available, called the Logos, that Nityanda was tapped into, or was a manifestation of, and in uh, that case, she or the person, the husband or someone, did all that he required, or re- all that he indicated, and the day came and went without, without incident. Here, we can't be sure... Uh, But uh, she rejected his offering of the coconut and um, became a widow. So, mm, like he says, um, each moment is a test to see how we will react. Tests of body, tests of mind, tests of spirit, tests alone, tests in relationship. Um, tests in association with the collective process, like today. So living others' dysfunction is a testing. Sick or... (laughs) I have a lot of anger. (laughs) Nityananda doesn't. Um, My despising of uh, this and that, that um, therefore triggers uh, anger arising, is a testing too. And so um, people who can't take care of themselves, people who don't want to take care of themselves around us, people who want to use us, people who want to depend on us, people who don't want to pull their own weight, people who want to be dogmatic, people who want to be um, obstructive, people who want to be um, ill in mind or body is also a testing for us if they're in our life. Uh, people who, uh, everyone's limited understanding, we have our own everyone's limited understanding as they interact with us is attesting how we will react and so um, his this book is a uh, chronicle of his interaction with countless people over the decades in every case where it seems to me He's observing an opportunity to be of service. Just like Ross said, the fully balanced entity would have no... For the fully balanced entity, no situation would have emotional charge. He doesn't have an emotional charge when somebody tries to kill him. Um, He doesn't have any uh, any, uh, satisfaction at their punishment. Uh, He doesn't have any uh, dismay at... uh, Or not much dismay at people failing tests. It's just the way it goes. You pass it, you fail it. He's offering, you take it, you can't take it. It's up to you. <coughs> and so, but um, the fully balanced entity without emotional charge or triggering, untriggerable, becoming the condition of untriggerability, um, simply observes opportunities to be of service. That's what it looks like is going on here. Again and again and again and again. And um, the... Uh, the the shit play, <laughs> like uh, like uh, sandbox play in therapy, the shit play here, um, you can say was a manifestation of the uh, intensity of a shock needed to get these people out of their ignorance and arrogance and conceit, thinking that they're superior to him or superior to anybody, because they are high class, high class, their birth by birth. High-class Brahmin by birth and wealthy, and have some manners, that they think that they that's some basis for the basis of ontological superiority, meaning essential superiority. That's a lie. That's not true, and they needed to be shocked out of that, presumably. And um, other people will say he's crazy, and uh, if that's if you you know (laughs) I don't know why I mean there are some people that they just like to complain. They like to stay with what they hate and keep complaining. They like to be sick. (laughs) They like being sick. And they keep themselves sick and share their sick or the misery-loving company or they're sharing their misery freely. And that's it. They're just like um, a festering sore that keeps festering and oozing. And they don't want to heal themselves. But they want you to feel sick too. There's some people like that. Not a lot, but there's some. And dark is attracted to light because dark needs light. Uh, so dark uh, mind, not skin color. Dark mind needs light, right? And so um, even killers came his way. So let's let's go on. We have time. Time enough. Time enough. Um, The next chapter, Mangalore Days of Rail Travel, 1923-1933. It was a lovely time, actually, the rail travel in those days in Mangalore. Very, um, very um, lovely air breezing by, actually, coming on the rails. Um, It was different than today. Nityananda loved trains. He frequently traveled by rail and even established his Kanangad ashram beside the tracks in 1925. When he was in Mangalore, he would settle into one of the empty boxcars shunted aside at the station, and here devotees would find him. One afternoon, Mrs. Krishnabai, learning of his arrival, hurried off to receive darshan, meaning um, private audience. She quickly returned home to greet a relative who had come for a visit, a sannyasi. He asked her to take him to see Nityananda the next day. Later, as they stepped down from the boxcar, Mrs. Krishnabai turned to the master and said, I came yesterday in such a hurry, never dreaming that I would also be able to return today. But Nityananda replied, Who are you to decide? He often rode the trains between Mangalore and Kanangad. Once, a railroad official who was new to the route ordered him to disembark for not having a ticket. As he made no sign to obey, the official forcibly removed him at Manjeshwar. Submitting to the rough handling, Nichinanda proceeded to make himself comfortable on a station bench. But when its departure time came, the train didn't move. Minutes ticked by, and people waited expectantly. Finally, some passengers told the official that it was unwise to treat this particular sadhu so harshly. Devotees then took Nityananda on board, and the train began moving. When it reached Kanangad, however, it went past the station and stopped where his ashram currently stands. The master descended, wearing around his neck a garland made of hundreds of tickets. <laughs> Magically manifest, I'd assume. He handed the garland to the same official, asking him to take as many as he wanted. Shame-faced, the man said it would not happen again. Nichinanda then jumped the small ditch and strode off toward the jungle. Again, the train would not move, and devotees ran after him for help. He retraced his steps, slapped the engine, and told it to get going. And the train did, going in reverse back to the station it had bypassed earlier. Probably due to such incidents, Nichinanda had free run of the trains. Engineers welcome in- welcomed him into their engine cars, and even blew a whistle, a saluting whistle, when passing his ashram, a custom still followed today, at least at that time. It is said that throughout the the late 1920s, the master always had a punched ticket attached to the string of his (laughs) loincloth. He's a lover of the rail, the railway. Swami Chittananda of Rishikesh recalled that, as a child traveling south by train from Mangalore, he once noticed a commotion at a wayside station. Peering out the window, he watched a reed-thin Nityananda toss biscuits and sweets from a vendor's tray to a crowd of delighted children. Then, giving the pleased vendor a currency note from his loincloth, he climbed into the engine car as the departing whistle blew. Udipi residents watched him catch cow cow droppings to put on his head. Then, whistling like a locomotive, He would chug away down the road like a child and he used a railroad analogy in his last public talk. This was on Guru Purnima day, Guru Purnima in July 27, 1961, 12 days before his passing. He addressed the assembled devotees at some length, talking about the energy required to pull a train up a hill and of a seeker's need to stay firmly on the proverbial tracks, the need for Utana or energy or zeal or heedfulness. Nichinanda travelled constantly between Mangalore, Kanangad, Udipi, Akroli, and other villages. His appearances, generally unexpected, seemed magical. One day, thinking him in Mangalore, six or seven Udipi devotees decided to pay a social call on a neighboring village. Approaching a wooded area along the way, they were astonished to see the master sitting under a tree. The devotees immediately changed their plans and decided to spend the evening there with him. When Nityananda shouted at them to keep their distance, they sat down some twenty feet away. They could hear him talking, and as their eyes adjusted to the gloom, They saw a cobra coiled at his side. It was to the snake that the master spoke in Konkani, and it seemed to nod in the affirmative. The only words the devotees could clearly distinguish were, Are you three comfortable? And they inferred that there were two other snakes nearby. After a while, Nityananda patted the cobra on its hood and watched it disappear. As witnessed, Nityananda's behavior could be difficult to interpret, (laughs) clearly. While a person might think that he or she had been forced to undergo a minor difficulty, later reflection would indicate that something more serious had been miraculously averted. Many devotees experienced this as we see in the following story. The young master often visited the home of of a devoted Mangalore woman, Once he told her married daughter, she is this one's mother, yours is here, indicating himself. One evening, Nityanda walked into the kitchen as the devotee was cooking over the mud hearth. He pulled out a burning piece of firewood, hit her over the head with it, and quickly left. Her children were outraged, but the mother advised patience and an explanation was neither sought nor provided. Twelve months later, while casting the family's horoscope, an astrologer from Kerala expressed his astonishment at finding the lady of the house alive. He said his calculations showed that she should have died the previous year. That was when her family realized that the master's blow had changed his devotee's destiny. Mrs. Lock. Lakshmi, Lakshmibai, Mrs. Lakshmibai, was a young domestic, widowed domestic in the employ of Tulsi Amma, a well-known devotee. The young servant was devotee devoted to Nityananda as well. One day she was asked to prepare the evening meal early because Tulsi hoped to bring Nityananda home to dinner. Now Mrs. Lakshmibai had always nursed an intense desire to feed him with her own hands, having watched other te- other devotees do so. Overcoming her shyness, she asked if she might accompany her mistress in case the master refused their offer. But, like Cinderella, she was told to stay home and make the house ready, so saying, Tulsiama left. So this is a dialogue between Mrs. Lakshmi Bai, um... And so she's the missus, but she's a widowed domestic working for Tulsi Amma, who's also a devotee. Meanwhile, the domestic or the servant, Lakshmi Bai, um, wanted to feed Nityananda with her own hands and asked if she could come along. But her, her boss, Tulsi said no and left and went to see Nityananda to take him back to their home. Finishing her preparations... Mrs. Lakshmibai went outside to gather fresh plantain leaves for serving the food. Still musing over her disappointment, she slowly cut a leaf and heard an unexpected rustle in the tree above. Nichinanda climbed down, asked if the meal was ready, and preceded her to the house. The overjoyed servant ran to wash her hands and began to feed the master. At that moment, Tulsiyama returned. Her words, quote, I couldn't find him. Were rapidly followed by her amazed laughter at finding the master already enjoying dinner at her house, being granting the wish of the servant, Mrs. Lakshmiabai, to feed him with her own hands, which is considered, which is you know, considered and uh, indeed um, an act of deep devotion, um, like a mother and a baby, uh, the devotee and or her, his master, or teacher. Um, that's deep love. Uh, Apaya Alva, going on, Apaya Alva was a prosperous South Kanara landlord, renowned and sometimes feared for his ability to materialize objects through the strength of mantra. This is a story I've talked about before. Um, the wedding Dharma battle so the guy's name is Apaya Alva Ap- Apaya probably is a is a title anyway a uh, landlord renowned sometimes feared for his ability to materialize objects through the strength of mantra he's a mantrayani. this powerful mantravadi, another term a mantra mantra master with a wave of his hands could produce foreign cigarettes exotic fruits or flowers by the armful However, when they materialized in one place, they disappeared elsewhere, often from the Carr Street flower market in Mangalore, where attendants would suddenly wail, my flowers are gone. And so it was that many people suffered from his exhibitions. Alva was also a vain and arrogant man. One time when his presence at a concert went unrecognized, he caused the singer to temporarily lose his voice. So, this is called black magic. Eventually, this Alva encountered Nityananda. One day, one May day in 1923, Mr. M.A.K. Rao, an an esteemed Manjeshwar citizen, was celebrating a niece's wedding. At Mr. Rao's insistence, Nityananda was invited and seated in a place of honor. It was while the soon-to-marry couple placed garlands around the master's neck... that Alva made his entrance. He immediately belittled the host for honoring the young sadhu... as if he were a divine being, and boasted that he would prove his point. <clears throat> Reciting a mantra, he then rolled a tobacco leaf between his hands... and forced it into the master's mouth. Nichinanda chewed and swallowed the leaf as if it had been offered by a devotee. This is a tobacco leaf, which you don't want to eat. As people watched, he perspired slightly, but Alva suddenly sank to the ground, mortally ill. He died three days later in the government Wenlock Hospital. And that's that. (laughs) Um, This is a different accounting than I had read before. Twenty years later, Nityananda was asked about this incident, he played down the connection between the tobacco leaf and Alva's death, saying that the man had misused his considerable mantric powers to bring suffering to the poor and misery to the weak. He said that divine forces had stopped the abuse, and he called the tobacco leaf insignificant. He then revealed that, before dying, Alva asked to see Nichinanda, but his family refused to send for him. Meaning, um... Alva's family refused to see Nityananda, which really means that Nityananda would have gone to see him and give him a blessing before he died, off to uh, become a hungry ghost and then to hell. In 1923, at the height of the monsoon season, Nityananda walked through the marketplace in Bantwal. By this time, he was a known figure in the district, recognized by devotees and skeptics alike. As it was raining heavily, he entered a shop and stood in the corner with the servants and porters. The shopkeepers ordered him to leave, taunting him about his great powers. When Nityananda asked to stay, they laughed and splashed him with water. Only then did he walk away, sadly saying, it seems God has decided that only Mother Ganga could wash away the sins here. The shopkeepers retorted, Mother Ganga it means the Ganges River the shopkeepers retorted, let her come, that way we can perform our ablutions without going to her banks. So, mocking him. And so, yes, Nityananda's reference to Mother Ganga was Ganges River. And this is marketplace at Bantwal. Even as they spoke, the swollen Netravati River trumbled and began to swallow the village. It was one of the worst floods in South Kannara, and Bantwal was destroyed. A span of the Ulal railroad bridge was damaged so badly that train service was disrupted for months. People still talk about Nityananda pulling many poor victims from the swirling waters. And, um, (laughs) anyway, let me explain that later. Perhaps the most extraordinary incident of this period occurred in a devotee's house in Falnir just before sunset. While they sat before him in meditation, those present were suddenly disturbed by a blinding flash of light on the wall behind Nityananda. They opened their eyes to find him motionless on his knees in a yoga posture, which is a vira-padmasana, padmas-lotus-asana, lotus lotus posture, vira-lotus posture, with his eyes closed, afraid to touch him, they lit lamps and tried to see if he still breathed. Finding no signs of life, they decided that he had been taken—that he had taken Masamati, meaning died—and went off to Niban uh, and invited people to come for their last darshan with the body. Most devotees soon returned to their homes. Some sad and disappointed that the young sadhu had left them, some hopeful that he would return, and some thinking that he had overdone his breathing exercise. He killed himself by pranayama, which does happen to some. Mrs. Krishnabai was one of the few who stayed behind, maintaining a vigil through the night and following day. That afternoon, Nityananda suddenly moved. He stretched his limbs and was immediately helped to a bed. He wore a strange look and recognized no one for quite some time. After questioning, he admitted that he had gone for good, but five divine beings persuaded him to return, saying that it was too soon. During his remaining years, the Master never spoke of it again. <clears throat> and so, yeah, there are beings uh, at his level and beyond his level. Yep, 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 five divine beings, meaning Logoic <laughs> beings, beings of 8th uh, density, beings of the Council of Saturn. <clears throat> they persuaded him to return saying that it was too soon, meaning they know it's too soon because they're uh, keeping track. They're keeping the clock, and they know where he is in the timeline of the agreement of his manifestation in 3D space-time. What happened here, I can't say. Um, It may be that um, uh, his connection to the physical was too loose or he was too much enraptured in um, the bliss of unity or logoic um, cessation this, I mean you, you know <laughs> the, the mm, leaving the octave uh, ending craving is, is uh, absolute extinction of all intention the, the complete destruction uprooting extirpation Dissolution of all intentionality, <clears throat> um, meaning any basis of doing, not doing, activity, or stillness is wiped away. Um, one, an individual or a being that had felt itself to be an individual is completely de individualized and uh, completely depersonalized and completely devoid of uh, desire, right? The ending of craving and uh, clinging. Uh, the root of craving clinging, we get to the fetters 10, 9, 8 in Buddhism, 10, ignorance of vidya, 9 is restlessness, 8 is conceit or um, subjectiv- subjectiv- sub- subjectivity, um, uh, fermented subjectivity, <laughs> a sense of self a sense of separativeness, a sense of uh, definable identity. And so that that's before unity. <laughs> uh, meaning, uh, unity is on the way back out. Um, the first basis of the causal root, causal foundation of incarnation in any dimension of the octave <coughs> is ten, nine, and eight fetters. And so restlessness and conceit is very much associated with the basis of desire or any intentionality any motivation motivationality motivation intentionality uh, on the way out those are removed and released as well and so he may well have gotten to uh, may well have drifted into <laughs> by 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 not preventing it by not prevention by not preventing it by not any intention to stay he lost all intention to remain Um, without uh, holding um, he was swept into the stream um, the kundalini stream from root to crown and ended up out of the crown and ended up out of the body that's not that's very reasonable explanation That um, he had a temporary cessation of the deep mind desire to remain associated with the body and uh, in the dimensionalities of the octave and basically then uh, with that temporary sus- suspension of that deep mind desire uh, moved into desirelessness and therefore moved out of association with the physical body and the light the blanding flash of light was the departure of um, Ultimately, um, the, monadic, <laughs> the monadic seed, what Bailey at called the monad, the seed of the monad, uh, which is basically the, <clears throat> the, the spark of uh, infinity that is called a sub-sub-logos that is the basis of Atman or higher self. Higher self, Atman, as sub-sub-logos, is basically a living flame. Is sort of uh, a spark of life, L I F E, capital L, which is a spark of the one infinite creator or inf- intelligent infinity. Um, a point of intelligent infinity, if, if it could be visualized, if it had to, we can only visualize it, right, because we have such limited understanding. To visualize it as a uh, monadic unit, it's Bailey Theosophy calls it a monadic unit, it's not a bad way of putting it, which is a. Uh, could be seen as a um, formless point of intelligent infinity that is the heart, the pith core of what is called a sub-logos at the level of higher self or Atman. Uh, that light was re- was visible as it cut its association with the 3D physical form. <coughs> that that light was liberated from <coughs> its uh, Association with the 3D space time physical body that he had at that time. And that wasn't Ma Samadhi. He actually left. But then <laughs> they had asked him to stay. And so th- this is just what happens. This is uh, the result of radical Vairagya, meaning renunciation. One doesn't want any of this <laughs> when one wants to be um, back to infinity, back to the blissful infinite light. um... That um, the endless summer day, the endless summer day is uh, akin to home. So, on that note, maybe that'll be all for today. Next time, we look over to the chapter Kangad's Rock Ashram starting 1925. So, we're concluding the period up to 36. And um, this is what was happening for him and around him in South India. In southwest India, coastal, western, coastal, southern India. um, While the west was falling into the Great Depression, going insane with their stocks and bonds and jumping out of windows. And then in bread lines and in a lot of pain. Interesting contrast. So, I hope this was useful. Mm, I'm uh, grateful to be doing this. Uh, and it's a good time in the world to be getting to uh, this essential. So, take good care of yourselves, see you next time, and good night.